Isaiah 57, verse 1. The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. Father, help us to understand your word this evening. Anoint us with your spirit. Give us your wisdom and understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a, a certain axiom that, uh, that happens to work in practically every area of life. By the way, an axiom is defined as, and I quote, an accepted general truth or principle. An accepted general truth or principle. It is also called a maxim, uh, an adage, a saying, a proverb. Well, you get the picture. So anyway, this axiom is this. Timing is everything. Works in every aspect of life. Timing is everything. A comedian without good timing shouldn't even be a comedian. You all understand. You can't, if you can't tell a joke and give the punchline at the right time, forget it. So, you know, I'm just giving you some examples. Uh, a defensive lineman on a football team who continually keeps jumping over the scrimmage line before the ball is snapped is a liability to his team. He doesn't have timing. And so I think you get the picture. You know, you can go on and on and look at all, every area of life. You know, somebody who, who you know, cooks... Uh, uh, trying to cook a pot of rice or something, and, and you know the timing is so important with rice. Uh, you take it off the stove too soon, you know, it's mushy. If you take it off too late, uh, you're scraping all this black stuff off the bottom of your pot. So you know timing is so important. Well, you see, when Isaiah was writing down this prophecy, when Isaiah was writing this prophecy, it was years before the Babylonian exile took place. And yet many critics of the Bible insist that the book of Isaiah was written after the exile since so many events after the exile are accurately and specifically prophesied. Their idea is, well, you know, nobody can be that accurate with prophecy. But isn't that what prophecy is? So they have to come up with a second Isaiah. It was somebody that wrote after the exile because they got all of these things so right. Well... The sins that are described in this chapter were firmly committed before the exile. Strictly committed before the exile. There were sins that were never committed during exile, nor were they committed after the exile. We know this historically. We know that because the people go back to Jerusalem, they go back to Israel, they don't have any desire any longer to do the things that caused them to go into exile in the first place. And so this chapter is an amazing proof that the book of Isaiah was written in the days of one author, Isaiah, and that before the exile, many years before the exile. Now, this chapter is a continuation of that which we studied back in Isaiah 56, verse 9, where the Lord was warning the nation of their judgment because of their ungodly leaders. Now, I want you to consider a statement that was made by Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations, the book that, pre uh, that follows, I should say, uh, the book of Jeremiah. Lamentations 4, verses 12 through 14. Listen carefully. It says, The kings of the earth and all inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in her midst the blood of the just. What do we just read in verse 1 of, of our text? The righteous perishes and no man takes it to heart. 
But notice why. Because of the prophets, the sins of the prophets, the iniquities of the priests, who shed in her midst the blood of the just. They wandered blind in the streets. They have defiled themselves with blood so that no one would touch their garments. You see, had the prophets and, and the priests and the rulers, which, which were the watchmen that we saw last time, the watchmen, had they turned to God in repentance and faith, the Lord would have intervened on their behalf. But they persisted in their rebellion, being sarcastically called blind watchmen and sleeping dogs that cannot bark by Isaiah. You remember we talked about that last week. Blind watchmen. Watchmen that can't see anybody coming. A sleeping dog that can't even bark. Can't warn. And even after that, the only thing that they cared about was eating and drinking, especially drinking. And so it brings us to the next verse, verse 1 of of Isaiah 57. The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. I I want you to to know that what it says is what it says. (laughs) While no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. And you might be thinking, does that mean that They were given death so that they would be taken away from evil. Well, the prophet is in fact lamenting the apathy over the death of the righteous. Noting that no one cares that they died. Righteous believers were being mistreated at the hands of Judah's cruel and corrupt leaders and were perishing. And at this point, let's go back to that timing issue. Because there were some abominations committed during the reign of Manasseh which was before all of this, that were post-exilic practices that would not have been committed after the exile. And I should say pre-exilic. Let me say pre-exilic practices that would not have been committed after the exile. After the exile is post-exilic. After the exile, it wouldn't have happened. But pre-exilic, before, before the exile, these things happened. Uh, they're described, for example, in Second Kings, chapter 21, verses 5 and 6. And he built altars, speaking of Manasseh. He built altars for all of the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he made his son pass through the fire. In other words, he sacrificed his own son. In the fires of Molech. Practiced soothsaying. That's like putting up a sign in front of your house. Palms right here. You see those signs today, don't you? Pastor Darrell saw one once, didn't he? <laughs> he thought it said Palms right here. It was a church and it said Psalms right here. <laughs> and so he, somebody took the S or something. But they practice soothsaying. They use witchcraft. Aren't people fascinated by witch, witches today? So I, uh, flipping channels, there's a station that was showing a movie called The Good Witch. It's an oxymoron. A good witch. Trying to make things, you know, nice about it. Here it says, it's an abomination to the Lord. They use witchcraft. Consulted spiritists and mediums. One of the popular shows on TV is something called Medium. Folks, they're popularizing things that the Bible says are abominations unto God. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke Him to anger. There's something that says that He did this to make God angry. 
Huh. If you skip down to verse 16 of the same chapter, notice what it says. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood. What does that tell you? The righteous perish. The righteous perish. Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, or to another, besides his sin, by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. But by the death of the righteous, and please listen carefully, so you'll understand what, this, what these first two verses mean. By the death of the righteous, these martyrs were spared the terrible horrors of God's judgment that would soon come upon his people. In other words, they died to be spared the greater evil. They died to be spared the greater evil, and in contrast to the wicked uh, that would die in judgment, these righteous would enter peace and rest as they laid down in death. I find it quite interesting what J. Vernon McGee wrote of this passage. He said, many of God's wonderful saints are being taken away today through the doorway of death. God is removing them from a lot of trouble that is going to come in the future. When I started my ministry, I worried about myself. And then I had a child, and I worried about her. Now I have two grandsons, and I worry about them. I no longer worry about myself or my daughter, but I do worry about those two little fellows because their lot in the future is going to be rough. If he wrote this anywhere between you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it would even be more significant now. But a verse of Scripture always comes to mind when I think of the death of the righteous because it tells us in Psalms 116, verse 15, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You see, we have a very interesting perception and conception of death in our day and time. Death hurts, and we all have experienced it. Someone has died in our families, friends, or whatever, and we experience the pain of that death. It's only natural. And in fact, it's only right. And it stirs up the fact that there are consciences in each and every person. We've been given a conscience by God to know what is right and what is wrong. And when you get to the bottom line, death is always wrong. Because God didn't come to give us death, He came to give us life. But when it comes to the way things are going in the world and all, and we come to the understanding that a person who is safe in the arms of Jesus Christ because they have committed their lives to Christ, because Christ has saved them, has washed them clean, has given them a new mind and a new heart to live in this life until the day comes when He takes them home, that when He takes them home, that's the precious thing. That's the most precious thing. We may, we may feel that sense of weight, of burden, of the pain, of the, of the loss of someone. There's a vacuum there. We all, we all have experienced it. But the very fact is that if that person that died in our lives is a believer in Jesus Christ, they live better than we do right now. They live in a greater way than we would ever understand until the day that we are taken home. 
So to understand what is being said here, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints, it's not that the Lord loves death. No, He, he loves life. That's why He, he you know, when, when He states that, when it states that about the Lord, it's because they have entered into that eternal life. And to rest in their uprightness before their God is their place of blessing. Their place of blessing. But as we come to verses 3 through 6 and, and, and the, the, the next few verses here in this, in this passage. And I, and I suppose it's hard for us to conceive and to understand what is being said about death and life here because we have not faced the kind of, of captivity or the kind of, 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 of chastisement that the children of Israel had to go through in, in their time of captivity. So it's hard sometimes for us to, 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 to really grasp the whole issue here. But think of what is being said now as we get into verse 3. It says, but come here, you sons of the sorceress. Now who is he speaking to? He's certainly not speaking to the precious righteous. Now the direction is, is, being, is being toward the, uh, toward those who are the wicked. That have not paid any attention to the death of the righteous who have not cared for them, who maybe even, in fact, had a hand in their death. He says, Come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? You think that's a new thing? When people do that? And they've been doing that for thousands of years. As a mockery. As ridicule. Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with gods under every tree, slaying the children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion? They, they are your lot. Even to them you have poured a drink offering. You have offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these? (coughs) Excuse me. During the last days of Judah at Jerusalem, Before the Babylonian invasion took place, the land and the city were greatly polluted by idols. You go to Israel today, and and, uh, in some places they'll talk about the high places and uh, where the idols were, and and you would think that there were only certain specific areas. But if you if you take the whole uh, of of of, uh, Judea as and 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 look at all of the hills and, and the mountains of Judea, man, there were a lot of places. Every high place was, was a temple to, a, to a, a false god. So they were everywhere in, in the land. And, and there were some reforms now that were instituted by kings Hezekiah and Josiah that led the, the people to destroy these idols and the high places. But, but as soon as an ungodly king took the throne, the people went back to their old ways. Every time a, a, a king that, that was not a good king, that didn't have his heart toward God, but had his heart against God, every time they did, the people would, would go back to the high places. They'd, they'd start over and they'd rebuild their, their Asherahs or, you know, the, uh, the groves. And I'll talk about the grove in just a second. But along with this came the mocking of the righteous, you know, the sticking out of the tongue. The wicked among God's people making fun of the righteous. And and here's the thing, God heard it. God heard it. And God, God in essence, is asking the question, who do you think you are? And who are you mocking? 
Who do you think that you are and who are you mocking? God clearly tells them who they are in verse 3. He clearly tells them. They're sons of the sorceress, the offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. The Lord sees idolatry, you see, and this is the whole picture. The Lord sees idolatry as adultery and prostitution before God. In that particular sense, the bringing together of adultery and prostitution, without any doubt the people knew they were committing wrongdoing. Nevertheless, they practiced with arrogance, I might add, their sensual worship without shame. Without shame. Notice verse 5. Inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks. You can go on and on in verse 6, but, but it's interesting that the groves of trees, the asherahs, the, the groves, and there were places where just trees would grow on top of hills. Well, these, these were the, the places of, 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 of the most idol worship that was going on because the trees themselves were signs of fertility to a local Baal, or to a a local Baal, you know, Baal. It was Baal worship. And so it was, uh, the the trees themselves were the signs of fertility uh, that then became the place of worship to practice a fertility cult. Now folks, this is the Jewish people going against God's law, God's command, that you shall have no other gods before me. But there they were, building all these gods and, and, and making gods of stone, gods out of wood, uh, and you name it. The implication of verses 5 and 6 is that you would find them everywhere, both publicly and privately. Folks, all that idolatry was taking place publicly and privately. And we'll see that even later in the home. It was publicly, privately, in the high places and in the valleys, on the cliffs and with the smooth boulders of the streams. Worship, sacrifice, and fornication was the order of the day. Now it sounds a lot like our day and time, doesn't it? And it's interesting that when it talks about the boulders and the streams, you can, you can almost literally translate it, the stupid, silent little stone idols are now your inheritance. The stupid, silent little stone idols. That's what God was telling them. These stupid little idols. You know why he called them stupid? Because they didn't speak. You know. They were stupid. That's pretty harsh. I mean, it's a harsh word. We don't like our kids to say that word, you know. But that's what it meant. They didn't speak. So all these things that didn't have any power whatsoever. That was their inheritance. That was their um, their portion, as it's called. Listen to the words of, of the prophet Habakkuk. What prophet? This is Habakkuk chapter Habakkuk chapter two, verses eighteen to twenty. What prophet is the image that its maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to wood, awake, to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and yet in it there is no breath at all. 
You know, that's significant before we go on to the next verse. Significant. He says there's no breath in it at all. Why? Because when God created man, he breathed into him the breath of life. When Jesus was, was, was setting his disciples in, into, into service after, after his, his resurrection, he breathed into them the Holy Spirit. Life. But here it says, and yet in the, there is no breath at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Why? This is an awesome verse because, you know, it says, let, let all the earth keep silent before him. Why? We need to listen to God. Why? Because God speaks. God's still alive. God didn't die in 1968. Or whatever year it was that uh, Time Magazine came out with that, you know, that, uh, that cover, God is dead. Or so says, you know, the academics of the time, the philosophers and the poets of the time. There's no God. God is dead. Not long after that, I think it was 1966, by the way, not long after that, the Jesus movement started. And it came with a mighty rushing wind. The earth is to keep silence because God is going to speak. These stupid little stones and carvings can't say a thing. Nowadays, I guess you could put little tape recorders inside of them. You know, and they can, you know. But all you have to do is take the battery out, yeah. So. But then the Lord says this. Should I receive comfort in these? When it talks about the... Um, when, when it talks about the... Um, the offerings given, the drink offering, the grain offering. Should I, should I take comfort in these? In other words, considering all the bad things that you're doing, should I still be patient with you? Should I take comfort in the offerings that you're making, even if you're making them to some stone idol? Well, of course, we know the answer. No, I, he's not going to take comfort in it. He's not going to be patient. With those who arrogantly desire to worship a God that is not... The living God. Verse 7, let's go on. On a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed. Even there you went up to, to offer sacrifice. Also behind the doors and their posts you have set up your remembrance. Uh, do you get a picture when, when you hear the words door and post? You should. Hold that thought. Behind the doors and their posts you have set up your remembrance. For you have uncovered yourself to those other than me. And have gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where, where you saw their nudity. Speaking of the, the, you know, just the, the openness to the, to the idols themselves. You went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers far off and even descended to Sheol. The word literally is hell. Where are so many people wanting to live today? They don't want to live in heaven. They don't, I don't want to go to heaven. There's no partying in heaven. We want to live in hell where everybody's going to party. No, there's no party in hell. You know, that's another story, a study for another time. But, you know, if you read the scriptures, I mean, they've got a real skewed view of this whole thing about heaven and hell. Number one, there's a, it's a place of gnashing of teeth. It's a place of, of, of smoke and fire and, and torment all the day, every moment. And it's a, it's a place of separation. There's no party there. 
Don't, don't be fooled by the pictures of the far side. They have, you know, they have some, some guy with, you know, pointed horns on his head and a long tail. And a, there are some funny ones. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of funny that people think that way. The one I like is uh, where they have, a, they have a room full of accordion players. Because that's the only place that an accordion should be is in hell. But anyway, that's it. There's a room, you know. They open the door and there's accordion players, you know. Yes, that's a little funny being a musician, but I mean, it's, a, it's not true. It's not true. I love the accordion. Pastor James does not love the accordion, and he's told me many times not to bring mine. So, <laughs> I have one, by the way. <laughs> anyway, but that's another. Where, where did we get off here? How did we get to accordions? Okay. They even descended to hell, uh, to Sheol. Uh, verse 10, now it says, You are wearied. This is very important. You are wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. The prophet continues to draw the picture of idol worship as an act of committing adultery against the Lord, bringing it even into their home, which begs the question, what are they teaching in their homes? And what are we teaching in our homes? You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is a passage that I read uh, most of the time that we do a, a baby dedication. Sometimes I read a, an, another psalm, Psalm 127. But Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, is the Shema, Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, uh, being the little boxes, you know, that contain the word of God inside of them. You shall write them on the doorpost. Notice the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Remember I said, remember the words doors and posts? And in this Deuteronomy passage, the Lord told Israel to inscribe His name and His word on every doorpost. Every doorpost. We just uh, finished celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and this last Sunday we talked a little bit about the blood that was on, on the doorposts and, and, uh, of, of the houses in, in, in Exodus, uh, in, in Egypt, I should say, but in the book of Exodus. As God was preparing for the Passover... The door, the, the doors were touched with the blood of, of, of a, a one-year-old lamb. Here in Isaiah, there is a perverse twisting of that. Because the remembrance of their pagan gods was to be behind the doors and the posts. The importance, you see, of the, of the blood on the house. But now, in their houses, it wasn't the blood that God had commanded. Now, it is their idolatry. It was God's original desire that His people would teach their children about Him. It was supposed to be His laws that were written on the doors of the house, but instead, the children in these houses learned about the wrong things. And so a generation would grow up confused about the law of God, because, you know, you would take the kids still to worship the Lord and to go through the sacrifices and go through all of that. But then inside the house, there'd be idols. 
Or there'd be a grove by which they would go up at some time of the night and, and, and do their worship of idols there. Interesting that Jesus in Mark chapter 9 verse 42 said something about what is done to children. Because it says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. For he had a lot of children around him. And this was the occasion that he took to, to let them know that, uh, you know, who, that the kingdom of God is made up of children. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And for anyone to teach in their arrogance the idol worship of that time. If you applied that back to the time of pre-exilic Judea, Now, verse 9 of our text tells us that they were also guilty of partnering with pagan leaders. And and, and I should say that uh, uh, it's possible that it was partnering with pagan leaders and trusting them with with protection instead of trusting in God. Consider verse 9. It says, You went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers far off and even descended to Sheol. Now, bringing to to the king anointment or, or, or perfume, it almost sounds like you're, like you're bringing something to them to worship them. But there is some connection, you know, some, some partnership here, uh, if, if it indeed is a pagan leader or a pagan king even. Because the interesting thing is that the word for king there is the word melek, M-E-L-E-K, it's transliterated from the, from the Hebrew. The word melek is very similar to the word moloch. There is a tremendous connection here between Melech the king and Moloch, the, the, the pagan god, of fire. The name of the, one of those idols which suggests the offerings of oil were offered as if to an idol. And it brings us to verse 10. You are wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. An interesting statement. Because as time went on, the spiritual adultery of God's people was no longer rewarding. They became weary with it. I guess the good word nowadays is the word bored. A lot of people get bored over things. A lot of people get bored with church. Might get bored with reading the scriptures. I get bored with praying. That's a sad thing. But even in the things that the world does, I think we see it more even there. The weariness of the things that they try to keep up with. Remember the phrase years ago, keeping up with the Joneses. The Joneses. We never had Joneses on our block. It was mostly, you know, Martinez's and, and uh, Garcia's and all that. But keeping up with the Joneses, you know, the, the Joneses would buy, a, you know, they'd buy a pickup truck, and you had to buy a pickup truck. And then they, then they, you know, they'd remodel the house, and you had to remodel your house. You know, just back and forth. Back. And, 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 and you just get weary. You, you earn more money, you buy more things. And then you get weary with those things, and, and, and it just, it's just this, this avalanche of just descending weariness over all the things you you get, you get, I think Geller would mention not too long ago that uh, 
you know, there's there's that 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 thing about uh, the bumper sticker that said, uh, you know, uh, the person who dies with the most toys wins. And, and in fact, you know, the the reality is the person who dies with the most toys without Christ loses everything. You know. So the thrill wore off. You know, the initial thrill wore. They were weary, but even then, they wouldn't repent. That's the thing. They wouldn't repent. They would. They wouldn't say that there wasn't any hope. And that was the point of what what the prophet is saying here. They were worn out by these pursuits, but somehow they found strength in them, rather than see how hopeless it all was. As it is when people wrap themselves in false religions and false teachings, Satan is able to meet some of their needs, and then they believe the lie. So they say, well, you found the life in your hand. Well, you know, they had this, getting all this stuff, and it was weary, but then found your life in your hand, and, and they weren't grieved. Satan met some need there. And so they believed the lie. And one of the major problems today, in not so much in the church, but... There is some of this in the church, but in society in general, is this problem of believing the lie. There is a deception. The enemy is bringing about a great deception in in these last days. And what happens when people choose error over truth? Because a lot of people are choosing error over truth on a daily basis. What happens when people choose error over truth? Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 for just a moment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12 says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. This is speaking about the Antichrist. This is speaking about the beast. That is yet to come, but quite possibly may even be on the earth today. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and notice, lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. We get, you know, we get a lot of people, if we, if we share the love of the, of the Lord with them, we get a lot of people that reject that. They, they just don't, they don't want to hear anything about Jesus. And I, I tell you what, in our day and time, in, in, our, in our country, more people are turning away from Jesus than ever before. Even to the point of mocking, to the point of ridiculing, you know, to the point of, of, of doing... Just abominable things. With the name of Jesus, with the person of Jesus, pictures of Jesus, crucifixes, crosses, whatever. I don't want to go into the details, but I think, you know, if you all stay up with what's going on in, 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 in society and stuff, you know, you, you know. The internet is one of the worst places when it comes to that. They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Because they were done, done in by this unrighteous deception. Let's go on. Verse 11 says, And for this reason God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. You know what the lie goes back all the way to? It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It goes all the way back to the Garden when, when the serpent said to Eve, Did God really say that? Did God really mean what he said? He just doesn't want you to see what he sees, knows what he knows, have the knowledge that he has. But you'll surely not die. And what happened? Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation. And all of us 
have received the payment of that, which is being born in sin. They should believe the lie. For the reason, for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So what are we encouraged to do and not to do? What are we encouraged to do and not to do? Well, I, I want you to turn to Ephesians now, to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll get back to Isaiah in just a moment. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 says, And he himself, speaking of Jesus, speaking of the Lord in, in, in particular, the Lord God. Ephesians 4.11, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry. Notice, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is what we're encouraged to do. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. That's what we're encouraged not to do. By the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But this is what we're supposed to do. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We are encouraged to grow into the fullness of Christ. We are not encouraged, or I should say we are encouraged not to, be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. So with that in mind, anything that we trust other than the Lord, because we are to grow into Christ, anything we trust other than the Lord becomes our God and therefore is an idol. That brings us back to Isaiah, doesn't it? Anything that we trust other than the Lord becomes our God and therefore is an idol. It could be our training. Listen carefully. Because these are things that we would never think. It could be our training. It could be our experience. It could be our job. It could be money. It could be friends. It could be position. We could turn to all of these things or to the Lord. On which does our hope lie? Does our hope lie in our training? Does our hope lie in our experience? Does it, uh, does it lie in our job, our money, our friends, our position? Or does, it lie, does our hope lie in God and in Christ? So I want you to listen to the Lord then. Listen to the Lord. Go on in Isaiah 57 verse 11. Isaiah 57 verse 11. Listen to the Lord. And of whom have you been afraid or feared? That you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to your heart. Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. You get the picture. This is God speaking to them. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry them away. Carry them all away. A breath will take them. 
But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. The Lord was confronting the fact that his people did not fear him and that they did, and that they did fear someone or something else. And because of their superficial relationship to the Lord, they only revealed a low view of God. Folks, I have to say this, but many times even in the church, we have people that have a very low view of God. They consider God to be, you know, the man upstairs, my buddy, buddy, or whatever. But, but folks, that's, that's, a, that's a terrible view of God. That's, that's a terrible way of, of looking at God. God is holy. God is righteous. God is above all things. So they revealed a low view of God and a complete lack of respect for Him. They didn't want to admit that they were actually disobeying God, so they would lie to themselves about what they were doing. We call that justifying ourselves. It's justifying. Some people just justify themselves. Rather than just get to the heart of the matter. You know, sometimes, even in our own, even in our own situations, in, in, in our, in our uh, friendships and our relationships with one another, we can say things that, that, that hurt and offend people. We try to justify whether well, the person needed it anyway. They needed me to tell them. But you break a heart and, 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 and rather than, than love them back into Christ. You know, there's things that, that can be done in that, in that particular attitude that, that's not right. So people lie to themselves about what they're doing. And, and, and what happens is that they, may, they can mistake the Lord's mercy and forbearance for weakness. That's exactly what the Lord said to them. That's exactly what he said. He said, is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? They mistook the Lord's mercy and forbearance for weakness. In other words, they mistook God's silence for approval. Now I want you to consider that in light of what it says in Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Where Paul says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So you can either mistake God's silence for approval or you can say, you know, God is wanting us to do something. This is what they missed, you see. The opportunity due to God's patience to turn back to Him on their own. You see, while the people were claiming to do good deeds, the Lord said that He would reveal just how good those deeds really were. Not very good at all, by the way. Their idols would not deliver them since they were good for nothing, but trust in the Lord would make them secure. And so in, in essence, God, even though He's saying this to them, restoration is being promised to them. If you'll do this, I'll do this. So that's a tremendous statement that God says at the very end of that, of that admonition to these people. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. So there is restoration promised again to the wicked. And you think, how many times does God have to, to give that opportunity? How many times? Let's go on, verse 14. And one shall say, heap it up, heap it up. <laughs> I like that phrase. Heap it up. Prepare the way. Take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. It's not a bad thing that he's saying there. As a matter of fact, it's a good thing, and I'll explain it in a moment. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity whose name is holy. Listen to this. Here's the holy God speaking. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit 
to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry. And he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips, peace. Peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord. And I will heal him. It's one of the most beautiful statements that God has ever stated from his heart to his people. The exhortation to build up the road, heap it up, reminds us of Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make it straight in the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And now a stumbling block is removed and a road is heaped up. Now this is a a, a picture. Heaping up is building up. The road is raised above all obstacles as the highway in Isaiah 35 verse 8 where it says a highway shall be there in a road and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road although a fool shall not go astray. I think sometimes, I, you know, I, I read that and I think, oh, Lord, I'm, I'm glad you included me. Because that's how we have to realize ourselves. Who are we? In the presence of Almighty God. At one time, we were a fool. And we fit the picture very clearly of what it says in the Scriptures. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And we didn't have to act ourselves or, 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 or place ourselves in the position of being an atheist type thing. It was a matter of the fact that we just lived our lives as if God didn't exist. Because we were the most important thing. But there's a road. That even though we've been fools, we won't go astray if we're on that road. And that's, that's a beautiful statement. Even if we've been foolish. God has a place for us and a road for us. For God's people to be right with Him, the first thing to understand is His great majesty and then to respond to His majestic glory. The first thing to understand is His great majesty. If we want to be right, and and this is what is being said to these people, if you want to be right with God, you need to know who He is. Look at verses 15 or verse 15, I should say. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. That's all we need to know. That's who God is. But then he says this, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. I have heard a preacher in our own city, a whole message devoted to the very fact that it's not good for us, it's, it's, it's wrong for us to talk about being humble or, or, or to have humility. 
I, I have that. I have that tape. I, I heard it with, with my jaw on the floor. Humility is a sign of weakness. No, it's the greatest sign of strength because God dwells with us who are humble and contrite. If we are so, we actually dwell with Him in that high place. It brings to mind the, fact, the very fact that the Scripture says if we humble ourselves, He will exalt us in due season. I, I'm assured of, of you know, we, we can, as Christians can be assured of that place with the Lord as we stay dwelling with Him and as we stay humble before Him. Contrite. Contrite. It takes us all the way back to Isaiah's vision of the Lord in chapter 6. Look, listen to these words in verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. All the way back to verse 1 of chapter 6, we knew that God was who He was. High and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. But if you'll jump down to verse 5, you can read the whole thing later. So I said, woe is me for I am undone. In the presence of this holy God, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's when Isaiah learned what it meant to be humble and contrite before the Lord. When he saw the High and Holy One. I don't know what everybody else is seeing when they say that we ought not to act humble or, or, under, or, you know, or, or go on this humility trip. It's not a trip. It's what we've been called to be before a holy God. The second thing for God's people to do to be right with Him is being contrite and humble before the High and Lofty One. The third thing to understand and getting right with Him is His great love. We need to understand His great love for us. And then in His mercy, He invites all, those far and those near, to peace. He invites us to peace. Far and near. Who are the near ones? The Jews. Who are the far ones? The Gentiles. You know how we know this? (laughs) Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 2. Before we get there, let me finish this thought. This peace that he invites us to is more than just the absence of hostility. It is the gift of wholeness and well-being. When I say to you the word shalom, I don't just mean peace like this. Peace, brother. I came out of that, you know. See, Brother Serge over there with a tie-dye t-shirt? And that's a beautiful shirt over there, man. I used to make those. In my, in my garage, I used to make shirts like that. Hippie type thing, okay? So, yeah, long hair, beard, yeah, okay. It's all white now. I look like Santa Claus if I grew it. But, you know, it was that kind of peace thing, you know? No, no. It's more than that. When I say the word shalom to you, it means God's wholeness upon you. God's well-being upon you. God's completeness upon you. That is a tremendous blessing you're giving to someone when you say shalom. It becomes a, a word that people want to use, you know. When you go to Israel, you can use it. Everybody does. Shalom, shalom. But there's something more to it. Paul said in Ephesians 2, verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and, those to, and to those who were near. The very same statement taken from Isaiah. 
the far and the near. When you read the context of Ephesians chapter 2, it is a matter of bringing the Jew and the Gentile together as one. In Christ. Verses 20 and 21 now. We're going to close right here. Because that last, that, that last statement that, that we read in, in verses 14 through 19, pretty self-explanatory. We just kind of covered a little bit of it. But let's close with verses 20 and 21. Here's the contrast. But the wicked are still without... Uh, the wicked are like a troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. And when the sea is troubled, it, it, it shakes up everything that's underneath the sea. You know, when there's a calm sea, the water looks blue. And you wonder, how did it get so blue? And you, you take a couple, you know, pick up some water, and you look at it, it's not blue, it's clear. Why is it so blue? Beautiful sky reflecting, you know. We all know that from school. But you know, when, it, when, it's, when it's all shaken up because of the storm and, and, and all the mire and the dirt and dust underneath, you know, gets picked up, it just, it's, it's unsettling. It's ugly. And that's what the wicked, you know, they're like a, the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. So in contrast to those who return to the Lord, the wicked are still without peace. The Lord has held out His mercy to man. But man must receive it. Man must receive it. You know, these last two verses are a good example of how the sea was thought to be, uh, by the Jews, a dangerous, dark, restless place. That's how the Jews thought the sea was. A dangerous, dark, restless place. But the great news is found in Revelation 21. Verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. No more sea. That was written for the Jew. They don't have to worry anymore. There's no sea. The waves crashing this way and that way and bringing up all of this unknown darkness and danger. It's not there. There's no danger. Yeah, I love the sea. I love, I love the ocean. I love to see it. Whenever I get a chance. But I know one thing. I need to love it. I, I, I need to enjoy it now because when I get to heaven, I don't need to have it anymore. I'll be before the presence of God. You'll be before the presence of God. You'll only look upon the glory of Almighty God and Christ. We'll have a Certainly a perfect understanding of what the Godhead is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Only light, no night, no death, no tears, no sorrow, no grieving, no perishing. We need to be heavenly minded. We need to have eternity stamped on our eyeballs. So that we look at everything 
in light of what Christ has already provided for us to come. And in so doing, we then will live in a contrite and humble spirit and with a contrite and humble heart. Timing is everything. And the scripture says it is time. It is the appointed time to know Jesus Christ. Because if you don't know him, your timing's off. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Let's pray.